This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right, guys. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 14, I guess the start of season two. It's our first time recording in 2022. Got some exciting changes and just continued growth of our team and podcast. One being that we have some upgraded audio stuff we're going to be using in the coming episodes, trialing it now using some different software. So hopefully you guys have a better listening experience. And then our team continues to grow. So you guys might remember Nick, who came on as a discussant and masterfully walked us through his clinical reasoning on the case and just really enjoyed the experience and reached out asking what he could do to be a part of what we're doing. So here Nick is today and he's going to lead us uh, in discussion with a case of his own. So I'll let Nick say a few words. Sweet. Thanks for the introduction, Kevin. I'm super excited to be back. Thanks for the opportunity. It's going to be fun to be on the other side of this and listen to my some of my classmates and their their thought process on this. So yeah, just briefly introduction of myself before I pass it on to you guys. I'm a M3 right now. Right now I'm super interested in EER and internal medicine. Still don't know where that's going to go, but we'll figure that out kind of closer to M4 year. And yeah, just just super excited to be here. So I'll just before we before we get going, we'll have two of our discussants today, Aaron and Berto, kind of just uh, introduce themselves. So Aaron, you can go ahead. Hey, everybody. My name is Aaron Park. I am originally from Tacoma, Washington, and I spent about the latter half of my um, life in Seattle, Washington. I'm currently an M3 here at Rush Medical College. And at this point in time, interested in internal medicine. I don't think I'll deviate from that. Beyond that, possibly cardiology, maybe interventional cardiology. Um, or electrophysiology. And then uh, favorite breakfast food, I would have to say a lox bagel. That is just a delicacy. <laughs> I'm glad I got some support there. <laughs> All right, Berto, want to go ahead and introduce yourself too? Thank you. Hi, my name's uh, Jesus Frala. I actually have four names, but I'll just give you those two. Then I go by Berto. <laughs> it's part of my middle name. So I'm from Kenner, Illinois. It's just an hour north of here. I'm currently an M3. Career inter- interests, I've been interested in neurosurgery for a while. So that actually comes up pretty soon. So I'm very excited to check that out for a couple of weeks. Favorite breakfast foods. This is pretty easy. It's one of two things, either a Starbucks sausage, egg and cheese sandwich, amazing road trip food, or uh, chilaquiles. If you've never had them, it's basically an excuse to eat enchiladas for breakfast. So would recommend those. Berto and amazing. Like I'm on board with that, but Aaron, you, you won my heart with locks and I'm just going to plug. There's this place. Northside Chicago called Steingold's Deli, and they have the most fantastic lox bagel sandwich on everything bagel. I wish I could have it every day. And then Nick, let's circle back to you. What's your favorite breakfast food? I was going to say I felt left out. I didn't get to say it. Favorite breakfast food? I have to jump on the bagel train, but I'm uh, not a cream cheese person. So just right. just egg on bagel, egg, cheese, bacon, whatever you can put on it, but but not, not cream cheese. That's my controversial opinion. And then uh, we have Dr. Abrams here with us. Hey, Dr. Abrams. <laughs> I got to say, Aaron, you know what I'm having for dinner tonight? I am having an everything bagel, <laughs> chive cheese, lox, nova, and uh, that's going to be it. Probably a little bit of tomato and maybe a little bit of cucumber. So I, I, I had bought it the other day and my wife and I have been saving it. I actually like it for dinner as much as I like it for breakfast. I'm envious. I'll have to give that a shot. I'm a team breakfast for all meals person, so... We'll, we'll get started here for our listeners who haven't uh, heard our episodes before. We kind of just like to present the information in bits and pieces. So we'll start off broad with just our first aliquot of information and just hear what Aaron and Berto um, and all of us kind of just have to think about uh, about this patient. And we'll just kind of have fun along the way in the, hearing our thought process. So ready for the first aliquot? So here it is for you guys. You guys can see it on the screen. And for our listeners, this is this is a 74-year-old male who's our patient today. He presented to his PCP. Initially, he had some gradual onset low back pain. This had been going on for about a week. And he said it was mostly left-sided or midline. It was kind of difficult for him to characterize exactly where the pain was. But at this point, there was no known trauma or any falls that this patient had had. So I guess my question for you guys, just to start this off, would be, based on the information we know, what other aspects of this patient's history do you want to know when you're starting to work up a differential diagnosis? For a patient like this? This feels like a very generic answer, but I'd like to know the rest of his past medical history. I had a patient today who had low back pain due to metastatic cancer. And so I'd like to know if, you know, I, I, that's at the forefront of my mind, somebody with prostate cancer or, or some other 
can't say that can metastasize. So that's usually where I like. To I think I agree with Aaron. I just want to know a little bit more specifically since we're starting off with back pain. I like this mnemonic that I've learned for like the red flags of back pain because it's like one of the most common kind of complaints coming into the office. So I think, yeah, I'd want to know like overall more, but specifically I do have questions I'd want to know, but we can get to those now or later whenever we're thinking. No, yeah, Pert, I, I think uh, that's a super good point in terms of talking about red flags. And that's kind of one of the ways we're taught about working out back pain. 1% of patients have what we would cause call a serious cause of back pain. So for the most, for the vast majority of patients, this is going to be something that's musculoskeletal, but obviously as clinicians or future clinicians, it's our job to kind of think one step further, like if this isn't musculoskeletal, what could it be? And, and, and red flags is definitely like a good way to think and differentiate about those. And, and actually we already have one red flag here based on this patient's, based on the limited amount of information we have here. You guys have um, any thoughts on what our red flag that we already have is? I'll go out on a limb and guess that it has to do with no known trauma or falls. Normally when people develop back pain, musculoskeletal in origin, it's after, you know, jerking motions, heavy lifting, you know, they slipped and fell or did something. Yeah, definitely no known trauma or falls. And I think I also want to add the age is pretty concerning. Obviously, we don't know anything yet about his past medical history, but I mean, somebody who's 74 years old, you're thinking some sort of malignancy or like prostate is like the common, you know, it's like the classic when you think of, when you think of an older man with back pain, prostate, any other sort of metastatic lesion to the spinal cord. But yeah, age, I think is definitely the most concerning. Yeah. Age and again, what Aaron said are very, con are more concerning. Definitely. Yeah. So his age, he's older than 50 when we think about, so yeah, definitely that's already a red flag in itself. And then, yeah, like Aaron said, there's no known trauma. So less, that's less likely to be MMSK in that sense. So yeah, you guys both picked up on that. Also in terms of age, it's something to keep in mind is patients who are less than 18. That's also a red flag too. So not just older patients, but younger patients as well. And that's something that I always um, tend to forget about. Okay. So yeah, I guess we can move on to the next aliquot and then we can talk. I, I, got, to say, well, I got to say one thing, Nick, and, and it, it's just to almost pile on what was just said. So in general, back pain is actually most common sort of in that middle group, right? So you already said when you're old, we worry about it. And when you're young, we worry about it. This is purely anecdotal, but this for me, it's like 20 years ago. I, I, I herniated it. I herniated my L3, L4 disc. I picked up a piece of paper. That was, that was the, <laughs> that was the trauma. So, so be careful about that piece because when you really think about it, you have to go back to high school physics and, and realize why that happens because it's invented in a twist and a torque that, that actually does the problem as, as opposed to anything else. But it's surprising how little you need to actually cause a, cause a big problem with your back. Berto, I, I did want to follow up. You mentioned having a mnemonic for thinking about red flags. You mind walking through that? Yeah, it took me a sec to jot it down. But yeah, so it's kind of funny. The mnemonic I like is the red flags. <laughs> so. P stands for trauma, H stands for history of cancer, E is extended. So like, you know, typical MSK, somebody comes in, usually it's just like an MSK back pain. You know, it's like some moderate act activity, some NSAIDs, and usually gets better. But if it's extended, that's red flag. R stands for rest or night, which I really like that. It's kind of for a reminder for the inflammatory signs of back pain. So like if it's, you know, it's worse with rest, it's worse in the morning, stuff like that. E stands for equina. So like any, you know, like, unilateral system, unilateral kind of sensory loss or incontinence, stuff like that. D I think stands for any disturbance. So like any kind of weakness or sorry, disability, any sort of weakness, a couple more F fever, L losing weights, A like Nick mentioned age. So age under 20 or over 50 is like what I like kind of have jotted down G for any general symptoms. We kind of covered already fever and weight loss, but any other general symptoms you can think of. And then S, steroids or some sort of immunocompromise. So obviously we don't know much about this man's history. You know, there's a lot of these red flags you could possibly have. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what we learn. Yeah, that, those are, yeah, I, I love having a thought process and like a mnemonic that, that you came up with just helps us like not forget. And honestly, like with all the information overload we have these days, just having some kind of diagnostic process to go to is super, super helpful. And I actually, I actually might use that one because um, I didn't yeah, I I didn't have one before this. And yeah, I guess before we move on to the next, next aliquot, I also 
like to, you know, not necessarily just think about the spine when we're thinking about the back. Cause I always go there. I was thinking about the spine, but there's other, you know, organs in our back, our kidneys in a, you know, in a man like this, something like a triple A or the aorta, something like pancreatitis can present in the back. So, um, that that's always something that, that I have to remind myself to as well. All right. So for you guys, we've got a good chunk of information here moving on. So. So this patient over the next six weeks, he had multiple visits to his PCP, kind of just due to this worsening, lingering pain. He had been prescribed some hydrocodone, which only provided some minimal relief. In the course of his outpatient time, he had a lumbar MRI. It showed some L5-S1 degenerative changes, but was otherwise essentially unremarkable. He was referred to neurosurgery. They did two epidural steroid injections, which provided some temporary relief, um, but the pain just came back. Additionally, he had about 10 to 15 pounds of weight loss, um, night sweats in this time, no documented fevers. His vitals were, he was hypertensive, otherwise normal and past medical history, like Aaron had asked for earlier. So he has uh, proxysomal atrial fibrillation, chronic mitral regurgitation, stable at this point, and also hyperlipidemia. And in terms of our social history, he had been before this in his usual state of health. He's able to walk around and perform all of his normal act activities of daily living. So I'll have you guys kind of jump in with, with all this new info, kind of a lot to unpack, but how does this change what you guys are thinking, rule in or rule out anything? Yeah, for me, the, the weight loss is very concerning. Obviously, malignancy sort of jumps up on the list, as does the night sweats, you know, make me concerned about an infectious etiology, whether that's an epidural abscess or, or POTS disease, some sort of, or some sort of tuberculosis process. Berto? Yeah, jumping in, I also agree with everything Aaron said. Also, aside from infectious, want to think of other kind of things that present with um, weight loss, night sweats, so like maybe B-cell symptoms, some sort of other malignancy, like, like leukemia or lymphoma, something like that. Aside from, I guess, the typical ones you think of in a 70-something-year-old. I think I want to know a little bit more, I guess, just about before he presented, like he was, so you basically said he's totally fine. He was able to do everything, has no history of back pain. Yeah, he was, he was, he was in his, his usual state of health. So aside from, you know, his past medical history, he was, he was fine. He didn't have any back pain and this kind of just, this did come on just gradually. But I will say, does the, does our past medical history, because Aaron, you had asked about that a little bit earlier, does that lead you in one way or another? Does it provide any valuable information? We have some cardiac um, history there. You know, I've got to think that that the mitral regurge might be some sort of clue for all of this, but but right now it's just not jumping. You, you know, it's it's not really jumpstarting any thoughts for me. And then I think the paroxysmal AFib. You know, I'm not entirely surprised if he's got this chronic left atrial stretching from the mitral regurge, and then hyperlipidemia in a 74 year old guy. I mean, we live in in the United States of America, so I, you know, I don't get all that excited about that. I guess just one more thing to add on. I guess I'm I'm obviously pretty focused on the back pain and like spine and all that but kind of like Aaron said maybe the mitral regurge I want to know a little bit more about like when that was diagnosed I want to know if there's other signs of endocarditis and you know maybe there's some sort of another app like an abscess epidural abscess um, which is a little different from initially like I was thinking maybe just some sort of metastatic thing but this could be an infectious cause great yeah I think you guys you guys made a lot of good points and, and honestly the, the need for more information here is, you know, I'm, I sure we have a lot of questions. So we don't have all the information here going forward. What kinds of workup would you like to make based on this information? What other things do you guys want to know to kind of help narrow this down since, since we are still pretty broad here? I think I'd want to know a little bit more about the back pain specifically. We know it was low, like a slow onset, but I want to know, is it, you know, any sort of like ridicule, ridiculous pain? Does it get better when he's shopping at the grocery store, you know, is it worse when he's walking, you know, stuff like that, just the quality of it, any sort of radiation, stuff like that. And then you I, guys I actually, kind of picked out the right mitral regurge is like, is it signal or noise? Is it a red herring in this case? How would you hope to gather more, more information about that, either through history or diagnostic testing? I'd, I'd certainly like to know if you know, if he knows why he had mitral regurge, whether this is just from, you know, a mitral valve prolapse or or if he had, you know, rheumatic fever as a kid and and has some chronic heart disease as a result of that, you know, obviously the patient is our best resource here. I think the history that he can afford us is going to be really valuable. So just digging into that deeper with him. Nick, you were asking about what else, you know, in his history, would we like to know? Berto said he'd be interested to know about other symptoms of these of this back pain. 
I'm curious about how the epidural steroid injections affected him, whether they provided relief or whether it was just, you know, if it was asinine. Yeah, that's a super good question. So they, they'd provided uh, relief kind of in that acute phase in the couple of days after the injection, but he didn't really respond to it in the way that the neurosurgery team would have expected if this was related to the L5S ages or just some chronic orthopedic disease. So the fact that kind of it came back, it wasn't really reassuring to them that that was an appropriate treatment or I guess a complete treatment. Uh, There's something else for sure. And then I think another question. So how long did it take him to lose these 10 to 15 pounds, the night sweats? You know, he had that one visit after having pain for a week. And then we kind of talked about how he six, six weeks after was having, you know, still, still had some back pain. When in the time course was this weight loss? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So his wife was the one who reported the weight loss. She didn't know the exact number. She just, his, his clothes were, were looser fitting. She had expected at this point, this 10 to 15 pounds had, it had been about a month. So it pretty significant there. And, and she, she had definitely noticed it and, and kind of felt that he was kind of getting a little bit weak with, with, with weight loss as well. So yeah, also I was wondering what you guys thought about no fevers. So when a patient has weight loss and night sweats, but they have no fevers, is that, is that really, does that mean anything to you or, or does, does that kind of, you know, you just kind of assume there's inf- inflammation going on or yeah, the easy is afebrile. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Berto mentioned that one of the red flags is, and I don't remember how you put it so eloquently, Berto, but in your nice little mnemonic, I think there was some mention of, of fever and that points towards like an epidural abscess. And the fact that, that this guy is afebrile makes me think that that's less likely. That falls further down on my differential. As for the night sweats, I think Berto already hit the nail on the head saying that that makes you think of, you know, some sort of, you know, B-type symptoms, whether that's disseminated lymphoma or what have you. And that coupled with the weight loss, I would, I would completely agree. Awesome. All right. So should we move on? So yeah, our next aliquot is some lab data and in addition to a, a little bit of other data as well. So in the course of his outpatient workup, he had some electrolytes. His sodium was low at 130, but his potassium was normal. Chloride, 95. CO2 is 28. Anion gap was 7. His creatinine was normal at 0.81 and glucose was 129. Albumin was low at 2.5. Calcium, non-adjusted calcium was low at 8.4. His billies, LFTs, alkphos, all that was normal. He had a CBC as well. His white count was up at 13.5. His hemoglobin was 13.3. His hematocrit was 39.5. And his platelets were 368. I will say that the 39 and 13 for the H and H here, and that actually did continue to downtrend a little bit in the next couple of weeks. He also had a TTE. This was done as part of just a routine cardiology visit for his chronic cardiac disease. It showed normal systolic function. Yes, 71%. It re-demonstrated a severe mitral regurgitate. There was age-related aortic stenosis, but otherwise the other valves were unremarkable. And then he also had a UA, which was normal. What do you guys, does, it, does anything shoot out here? Are any of these labs helpful for you or the echo or UA? I think something I think quickly to mention about the albumin calcium is, I, I don't think we know if the calcium is truly low, if the albumin is 2.5. If this is, you know, total calcium, we'd, I think we would expect it to be low because Calcium, you know, binds to albumin and if we're running low on albumin, we're not going to have as much calcium. So I think this, either the calcium could be truly low or it could just be related to low albumin. Right. Signal for noise there. Go ahead. I would say the one, the one thing that, that sort of excites me here is the sodium of 130. You know, I, 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 I'm not surprised that a 74 year old guy has a hemoglobin of 13.3 and you know, the, the albumin and the calcium are yeah, I mean, the albumin is definitely low. The calcium, it doesn't really, that doesn't freak me out too much. But but a sodium of 130 in a guy who doesn't have much explanation for it, you know, unless he's telling me that he drank a gallon of water before he went and got his labs drawn. I, you know, I don't know what to make of this, whether this is some sort of adrenal insufficiency. I would have expected other electrolyte abnormalities. I think, I guess one more thing to mention is we don't know, we know his, do we know his total protein? I was wondering if we could, check out the gamma gap to see if there's a hint of anything else in his serum. We know the protein is low. The albumin is low. We don't know how high his total proteins are. So there could be something else in the serum. Just looking at the albumin. Yeah, that's actually a super good point, Berto. I don't have the exact answer for you in terms of the total protein putting me on, put me on the spot there, but no worries. I, I will say that, and this is something that 
Um, they, they did as an outpatient, they did do an SPAP and they did do kind of a little bit of, of an evaluation for multiple myeloma, kind of given the anemia and back pain. And that did kind of show a monoclonal, monoclonal demopathy of undetermined significance, which the heme team had later kind of just said they could work up later and wasn't really, it wasn't multiple myeloma or anything. But yeah, I think that's super interesting you brought that up because that those are actually questions that they they did ask. And and for simplicity's sake, we didn't, we didn't actually include that in the aliquot, but you're one step ahead. She's yeah, very intuitive. Not in, not in the right direction. I put that together with the back pain and, you know. But. Yeah, no, you, 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 that is totally the right direction. And that's actually what happened. So but yeah, in terms of total protein, don't have the number of the answer for you. But in terms of the low albumin, kind of, you're, you're looking at the low albumin and, and kind of thinking about a patient with, with progressive, you know, he's got a little bit of an anemia. He's got progressive night sweats, weight loss. Does the low albumin in that context mean anything to you guys? I mean, I know you can have like a protein losing enter like enteropathy with heart failure, you know? So if they have, you know, their, yeah, ejection fracture. Okay. Actually, hold on. So we said they have severe mitral regurge. Okay, so I think with severe mitral regurge, 71 seems high, but it's probably lower than, than, than it really is because with mitral regurge, right, you're getting more basically into the ventricle. So I think actually anything, well, obviously they're over, but anything less than 60% is a really bad sign in mitral regurge because again, it's like kind of a false, you know, EF just because you're having that increased preload. But yeah, I think the only thing I, connection I can make right now is with heart failure, maybe they're just losing some protein because of that. I think that's also another really intuitive thought and something that just jumps for me with albumin 2.5 in the setting of his history of about four to six weeks now of B-type symptoms. This is just supporting evidence of that. So he's, there's some kind of metabolic phenomenon happening that's causing him to lose weight and it's reflected there in that albumin. One other comment just about the rest of his labs, this white count of 13.5 you know, I know very nonspecific, but, but I think to me that brings back like osteomyelitis onto the table, which I had decreased during our last aliquot because, you know, he's afebrile and this has been going on for so long. But I think, you know, in some patients who, you know, have chronic osteomyelitic changes that, you know, they may not be able to mount a, a longstanding fever like this or may have sort of this insidious elevated white count. So I love what you just did, Aaron. You, even if you don't know what you did, you just totally invoked Bayes' theorem there by saying you decreased your thought process centered around osteomyelitis, but then this new post-test now kind of finding of a white count elevated supporting some kind of inflammatory or infectious picture raises that again. So just like how you're able to adjust your, your diagnostic clinical reasoning as information is presented, it's amazing. So mathematics is for me and not medicine? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, your, your integration of mathematics into medicine is going to make you an amazing clinician. I think, I guess one more thing about this white count, Aaron brought up a great point. Maybe it's not his, maybe he's afebrile, but it's not, you know, maybe it's fake. Maybe he's just immunocompromised or maybe he's on some medications we don't know about yet, but if he was a younger, healthier person, he could have a fever. So with that being said, I think I kind of want to know maybe if he has any sort of exposure history or like TB risk, maybe thinking like POTS disease or anything like that. Kind of like Aaron said, I took that off the table, but, um, you know, with his older age, maybe he would have a fever normally. Yeah, I, I love what you just said, because kind of when I was asking about fever earlier and, and just the fact that just because someone doesn't have a fever doesn't mean that, that they don't have inflammation or that they don't have infection. And you guys literally, you guys said, I mean, in terms of being immunocompromised, so you guys are asking about history of, of immunocompromise or something that's going to stop the body from mounting an appropriate like inflammatory response. And so, yeah, the way you guys, the way you guys adjusted, that's, that's definitely something that's important for, for our thought process going forward. So, and then also, yeah, in terms of these labs, to be honest, like, I mean, they tell us some information, but there's, there's, they really, it also is very underwhelming. There's a lot of this just not here. And like, we can sit here all day, try to figure it out, but we just don't have enough information yet. And I think that's kind of one, the fun part about this too, is that we already have so many thoughts and we really don't even have that much info. So on that note, I think we can get more info. And I really like this next aliquot. So another, so I, I, about six weeks had passed since the um, original presentation. So since his first PCP visit, this is now six weeks into the future, the patient was admitted to the hospital 
um, for worsening fatigue, some weakness of the lower extremities, night sweats, the weight loss about 20 pounds. He had two mechanical falls kind of in the week or so preceding the admission. One was witnessed by his wife. Um, he had fell, fallen on his back. The other was unwitnessed. And his wife kind of just said, you know, he's really not able to take care of himself um, in the outpatient setting. And that's kind of what, what eventually brought, brought him to the hospital. So his initial vitals, 105 over 72 was blood pressure. He's afebrile, 100 beats per minute, some mildly tachycardic there. And then he had a respiratory rate of 12 and he was satting 97% on room air. H-E-N-T, respiratory, abdominal MSK and neuro exams, they were all normal. His cardiovascular exam, he was tachycardic, regular rate, or yeah, regular uh, rhythm, excuse me. S1 and S2 were normal. He had a holosystolic murmur that was appreciated over the left fifth intercostal space, and there was two plus bilateral lower extremity edema. He had a chest x-ray, a CT brain, a CT spine, and a CT C-spine, and L-spine, which were unremarkable for any acute processes. And then he had also started to complain of some new worsening pain in his right shoulder. So a lot to unpack here as well. What do you guys think? Anything stand out to you here? Yeah, I'm concerned about what looks like an exacerbation of his heart failure. The fact that he's compensating by being tachycardic, you know, you've got signs of over her failure on exam with this two plus bilateral lower extremity edema. It sounds like that has become more of a concern in terms of his ability to maintain a functional status. You know, I'd be, I'd be curious to see his labs at this time and a repeated TTE. Like Berto had mentioned before, the relationship between heart failure and hypoalbuminemia. I could see that being worsened now. And then I just have a quick question, I think, just to fill in a gap I have. Did we get a medical uh, med history? Is he on any medications? I'm sure he's on something, at least for his AFib, but anything? Yeah, su super good question. So he he was uh, anticoagulated for his atrial fibrillation. He's also on dronadarone for some some rhythm control. And then he was taking, I believe it was a torvastatin for hyperlipidemia. So yeah, he, and so he, he had the, the, otherwise, yeah, I don't think he was on any other medications. I say that second medication one more time. Journeying around the antiarrhythmic. I think that would be the class three antiarrhythmic. What were you thinking in regards to medications, Burrell? This is kind of random. I was just thinking, I, we know he has a history of anemia with severe mitral regurge and the possible aortic um, stenosis. Is that correct? There was some sort of, or was that? On the original echo, there was, there was mild age-related changes of aortic stenosis, yeah. I think just something I thought about real quick is or a possible cause of this anemia is Hyde syndrome. Basically, like if you have some sort of calcification, basically just can kind of lead some bleeding, some occult loss of bleeding that can accumulate. And then, so then that also got me thinking, like, is he receiving, has he ever received any, is he receiving like blood transfusions or anything like that? Because then you start going, thinking about, you know, the kind of complications that come with frequent transfusions. But yeah, that's, that's about, that's all I was thinking there. Yeah, great thoughts. And then in terms of also, I, I thought interesting in terms of the shoulder pain, they, they had examined the shoulder, but so his shoulder pain really was something that he kind of had complained about on his, his first uh, day of the hospitalization and kind of they, it was not ignored, but it, in the context of what was going on, it wasn't really something that uh, was given too much attention until he really did complain about it more constantly than, than what would be expected for just, you know, shoulder ache. So, you know, kind of given that information. He's, he's, he does have this, this joint pain that seems to be a new onset as well. Does that, I mean, does that bring in any thoughts for you guys in terms of differential here or just in terms of causes of shoulder pain in isolation? Related problem, separate problem. I'm going to have to say it's related. Occam's razor, I just like to go for that. <laughs> and we totally do not have enough information right now to, to relate them at all. <laughs> was, uh, may I ask, was this a shoulder that he perhaps fell on when he had these two mechanical falls? Possibly. That's actually a super good point. That's possibly something they had thought originally, but no, I, I don't think that, that he at least, or his wife had, had said that he had fallen on that shoulder. So it's thought to be non-mechanical, but of course, something that, you know, not, we're not hundred percent sure of that, but at, the, at this point it was thought to be non-mechanical. Well, I think also looking back at it, the heart failure probably explained his hyponatremia. So I don't know it seems to be focusing more cardiac, a lot of these symptoms. Again, I think the albumin, we can connect back to heart failure, hyponatremia. So not to like block us down that path, but the heart is really kind of sending a lot of, a lot of signals here. Yes. Yeah. You guys think anything of the murmur? I mean, I think that to me, at least the echo sort of explains this, this holosystolic murmur, especially down, heard down at the apex of the heart. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Known mitral regurgitation. Definitely a physical exam finding that you'd expect there. Should we move on to some more info here? All right.
So hospital day four, the patient has an acute change in mental status. The nurse noted that overnight he had some episode of slurred speech. They did a CT brain, showed some low density focus in the body of the corpus callosum to the left midline with mild mass effect. The radiologist had recommended that they obtain an MRI to further characterize that. However, in the, in the next couple of days, they, they were unable to attain, obtain it just because he had some trouble sitting still in the MRI machine. He now spiked a fever to 101.5 and they took blood cultures, which grew gram-positive cocci. He was started on vancomycin at this time. So yeah, we have this acute mental status change, CT brain findings now, a fever, now blood culture positive. So a lot, and this was kind of all that happened in the acute setting in the, in the hospital. So any, any thoughts here? What, what jumps out? to you the most or kind of in combination? I'd like to defer to the budding neurosurgeon on, on the um, evaluation of the CT brain. <laughs> Consult neurosurge. This thing I theoretically have about eight years of training left, so. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I would say that in terms of like the, the exact read, you know, it was a little bit vague. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go too much into you know, corpus callosum and all that, just, just the fact that there was some low density foci in the brain and there was an acute uh, mental status change, slurred speech. What, what are you thinking as like the thing you're most worried about here? Yeah. I mean, so the, the biggest thing you want to do here is, I mean, you're thinking of a stroke whenever, I mean, whenever there's some sort of altered mental status, slurred okay. speech, especially anything, just anything like that, you're thinking of a stroke. So CT sounds like, yeah, there was some sort of focus, but no blood. So I'm sure they followed the stroke pathway. So yeah, if they figured out there was no blood there, that's, you know, that's maybe a sign of an ischemic stroke or, you know, some sort of embolism, something else that got lodged there. Um, May I, I'm going to ride your train, Birdo, and say that that makes me think of septic emboli. You, you've got these positive blood cultures. He's now febrile to 101.5. We know he's got this damaged mitral valve. You know, it's a perfect nidus for, for, for an abscess. And so, you know, I don't know if, if his mitral valve is throwing throwing off these little septic emboli all over the body but yeah that's that's where i'm going with the cc brain yeah and then i mean with this history of afib you know who knows he could possibly he's on anticoagulation but who knows how that's going given his possible hypercoagulable state with this you know possible malignancy so i think could just keep adding to this and he's probably throwing emboli like Aaron said that is awesome and and going back to the going back to the shoulder pain, you want to throw that in here. Um, does that make sense at all here, um, as well? And it, it doesn't have to. So yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys basically just took this new information here and kind of essentially explained a lot of, of a lot of what's going on. And you guys also talked about kind of pathophysiology, and you you use the medical history to kind of also form a hypothesis. You know, it, it in terms of the medical history of valvular disease, you you mentioned um, you're using that information in addition to to the kind of more objective clinical information we have in front of us. So I thought that that's super, uh, super impressive the way you guys did that. That's one quick thing I want to, I want to ask, does he have a history of kind of going down Aaron's pathway, like any GI, GU kind of issues, like when was his last colonoscopy, like any BPH, any sort of history? Can you explain before your I, I, Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say before I, before I answer that, what, what you thinking? Well, some of the classic things I've locked in my brain for, First step is, I mean, some of the, every, basically some people, certain populations have like classic causes of endocarditis. For example, you think people who use IV drugs, like you'll think Sephoris, right? Anybody who's had GI, GU procedures, you'll think of Galliticus, for example, or actually, sorry, Enterococcus, right? And yeah, Enterococcus, people who've had, so if you find, one sec, so if you find Galliticus, right, then you want to like look for colorectal cancer. So, and then with his back pain, I, I think a lot of, a lot of these different kind of causes are on the table, but I just want to, yeah, I guess want to know when his last colonoscopy was any sort of GIGU issues, kind of like we mentioned, kind of doubt it, but well, I guess, you know, any history of drug use, anything else, Aaron, that you can think of? No, but I'd like to say, I think that was a very astute observation. Mind you, he's got a lot of explanation or, you know, things to sort of tie back into this potential colorectal cancer. He's got this anemia which I think would be reasonable to presume would be iron deficiency. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just the proximity, whether he's having metastatic spread there and now these gram-positive cocci. Yeah, I think, I think I like the way you're going. Just to add to that one more layer, um, sorry to all or any internal medicine people listening, but <laughs> another, another thing we've learned is if any older man has an iron deficiency anemia, it's basically like colorectal cancer unless proven otherwise. So I think we could have yeah, jumped on that, you know, Never too late. So I guess jumping on that now, yeah, we, we 
probably should have asked sooner about any colorectal cancers, but the iron deficiency anemia in an older man was definitely a big uh, red flag for that. I, oh my God, I love your guys' reasoning right now. This is amazing. I was wondering right away when you were asking for more info about GIGU, if you were making that connection where you're like, were you thinking this is a malignancy and you're trying to tie it to a bug being that we have some signal coming from the heart? Because base rate of disease is, this is staph aureus until proven otherwise, in my opinion. Just, it's very unlikely to be something else. We don't have like the supporting history of IV drug use, but it's still the most common bug for, for valvular endocarditis. But I love how you're framing information we've already gathered that's supporting this picture of malignancy that you guys have both been suspicious of since the first aliquot. And you're tying that in. So just fantastic job, guys. I guess one more thing to add is, I mean, if we're really thinking, you know, some sort of malignancy, he has this right shoulder pain. I mean, it could be a met that went to the, to the lung. You know, it could be causing, like if it's at the apex, it could be causing those symptoms, like the shoulder pain, weakness. I think that could be causing it. May I ask where was his right shoulder pain? Was it, you know, was it a pinpoint? Was it an acute location? Was it very generalized? Was it posterior towards the scapula? Good question. It was, it was very generalized. Um, involved the whole shoulder, could not, could not localize it and kind of just all movements hurt it. And was that anything else on physical exam? Like how's, how's his overall strength, pulses, you know, is his arm, are his limbs warm? How else is, how else, how is his limb doing otherwise? Yeah. All super, super good questions. So yeah, his pulses, his, his okay. In terms of his neurologic exam, they had done, they had done quite a few neuro checks after his, his acute altered mental status change. And they, they were significant for, for a little bit of weakness on, in the right leg, but not, nothing else really uh, screaming out on the neuro exam. He, he did ha come in with a little bit of baseline weakness in both of his legs prior to kind of on presentation of the hospital that is thought to maybe be related to, to why he was falling. Um, he's just kind of weak there in both legs. But yeah, I think those are all really good questions in terms of like just continuing to ask for a detailed, detailed physical exam. If you were to examine the shoulder, where are some things you'd look out for in terms of like a, maybe more of a global cause? I'd like to look at range of motion, both passive and active, try to see if like I alluded to earlier, I was wondering if there was if this was pain due to one of his mechanical falls. You know, I, I'm thinking if he tore his labrum or something. I, you know, this is under the context of this shoulder pain is unrelated to whatever disease process he's got underlying all of this, and and you know, it's just something else that we're working up at the time. I gather you guys wouldn't lead us this far down this path had it not really been that exciting or pertinent to the case. But you know, I'd still like to consider rotator cuff injury, tendinopathy or tear. You know, we're we're concerned what sounds like a damaged mitral valve throwing clots off, you know, it's not out of the question that he could have thrown one into the, you know, anatomy was never my strong suit, but the brachiocephalic <laughs> artery, is that right? And, and concerned for like acute limb ischemia. But if this is, you know, it, because this sounds like it's um, more insidious, then I'm not really that concerned about that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that those are all good points. And I, I love your, your, you know, you can, you're just continuing to, to keep everything wide, wide open in terms of your thought process and, and kind of like you're refusing to, to anchor on any certain thing. Um, and you guys always asking more questions kind of about like his exam and, and, and all those, those points. So I will say now, based on this information, what would you guys, like, what would your workup now be to either confirm what you guys were thinking or kind of investigate anything further? I want to add something real quick again to the shoulder pain. I just, this is all over the place and it was super interesting case. But I, again, I still feel like it's probably connected. So I want to say, talking about the shoulder pain, I, I think I want to know more about, I mean, Aaron covered it, but also maybe if he, if there's some neuro symptoms involved, ptosis, meiosis, and hydrosis, like I mentioned earlier, if there's like that tumor at the apex, right? This is so, this is so strange because we think it's endocarditis, but also think malignancy, which both could coexist, like we're saying, right? That's kind of our theory. So say, the colorectal cancer did spread to, to the lungs. He could have a superior sulcus tumor that could be causing, like, do you know, how's, how's his, his uh, neuro exam, like cranial nerves, all that? You know, I don't have it in front of me. That's totally and, fine. And so, I, I, yeah, but I, I, I think that, you know, I, that's something that I didn't even think about. And, and honestly, it would make, it would make sense. You know, you're kind of taking the anatomy as well and, tr and trying to, to, to relate that into this clinical context, which is actually really like super advanced. And, and, and that's not even where my brain can go at this point. So, so yeah, I will say there was no like gross unilateral swelling, um, of the face or, or, or like there wasn't any, or 
bilateral swelling or neck ever anything that they had noticed but also just like super impressive thing to, to think about and bring up i would say so um going to in terms of workup so like if we had one order something to kind of confirm what you guys are thinking then what what kind of steps would you would you take here what's the, some kind of more information obviously that that brain mri is, is on its way i mean i'd like to see a little bit more blood work at this time but also thinking in terms of bigger picture big ticket items i'd like to probably see a transesophageal echo get a better look at his mitral valve see if there's any vegetation growing yeah i feel a little embarrassed that we didn't mention this earlier when we were when we saw the results of the ct that we didn't at least question whether there was some brain metastasis and if we did then i it was in one ear and out the other i didn't pay attention to that you know i don't know how frequently colorectal cancer metastasizes to the brain but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility i think a couple things i want to add well first of all hopping off aaron's train or hopping on aaron's train whatever the metaphor is. I, I recently learned, I'm, I'm on surgery right, right now, and I got to scrub into a transplant case. And I learned that up to, this is a, this is actually mind-blowing number, but apparently 70% of colorectal cancers can metastasize to the liver. So I definitely want to include the liver in the CT scan. You know, so that's something interesting to think about. Second, I want to take, I don't have Duke's criteria memorized, but I want to <laughs> pull out and and check out how Duke's criteria, what Duke's criteria has to say regarding endocarditis along with Aaron's echo. I will yep. add, uh, no, yeah, Aaron, if you had something to go on. Well, I just have one more thing to, to say, and I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, Berto, but I think a colonoscopy is in order. Like you said, <laughs> iron deficiency anemia is a GI bleed until proven otherwise. Let's, let's look up there and, and see what we can find. So I, a couple things here. First of all, this patient did not have a colonoscopy uh, done within the guideline recommended period before this. Second of all, I just wanted to say super impressed that, okay, so first of all, Aaron, you said you wanted to, an echo to see vegetation as a next step, which I would totally agree. That's like an awesome next step. And then Berto, I think that your, your uh, suggestion of imaging, you know, multiple organs like you talked about in the abdominal organ, including the liver, because we, you know, we have a process that seems to be in, you know, a systemic process here. Um, that's actually like a really, really interesting point. And you'll see on, on kind of the next aliquot that, that that's one of the strategies that the, the medical team took is, is that, you know, we have shoulder pain or we have, we have something in the brain, we have the heart involved, kind of taking a look I mean, intra-abdominally or just kind of broadening that because if something goes wrong somewhere, it's more likely to go wrong somewhere else as well. So that is also super impressive. So I think on that note, our next aliquot. So we had a chest abdomen, a CT chest abdomen pelvis, which showed some cardiomegaly, likely volume overload. And then there were three peripheral wedge-shaped hypodensities in the spleen. The lumbar MRI showed inflammation around the left sacroiliac joint concerning perceptive arthritis. And then they also had done a right shoulder tap. Why don't you guys uh, discuss the imaging findings first, and then we'll get into the, the details of the shoulder tap. I'm seeing wedge-shaped, and I think we need to get this man on and every antibiotic possible. And I mean, I, this just adds to what we've been saying. I think we're, he's just throwing a ton of emboli. And I mean, again, it could, it could be endocarditis. It could be he's just hypercoagulant throwing, throwing clots out. Maybe a mixture of both, but the wedge shape and the spleen, I mean, yeah, those are infarctions. That's obviously very concerning. The septic arthritis, again, like that, that supports, he's throwing septic emboli. I think that's what, maybe that could be a cause of, obviously you want to keep an open mind, but just keeps kind of supporting that he's tossing out. Sweet. I have nothing to add. Going off that, then could you maybe anticipate what the results of his shoulder tap would be? I am going to hazard a guess that it is septic. <laughs> Not a trick. All right. Yeah, we can, we can uh, show him here. So. You guys can see his, his his synovial fluid analysis. They did a, a tap of his shoulder, and just for our viewers, it was it um, of the right shoulder. There was it was grossly xanthopere, xanthochromic appearing with uh, moderate gross blood. White blood cell count um, was about sixty four thousand with twenty thousand red blood cells. And then his polymorphonuclear percentage, so percent neutrophils, was um, about ninety five percent. There weren't in, not any crystals. So this, yeah, I guess you guys can go ahead um, and and kind of also you can go over maybe a thought process. In terms of how you guys would like interpret this but yeah really just kind of lining up with with the picture that that we're seeing here you can go ahead if you want you know like i like i said earlier i kind of cut to the chase and said this is septic arthritis but yeah this this fluid count and culture kind of just looks exactly like that i mean you've got a white count greater than fifty thousand. you don't have a better explanation you already know he's got septic arthritis in one other um in one other joint so so you know all clues point towards septic arthritis here what i'd like 
well, you know, maybe this is extraneous, but culturing this synovial fluid and seeing if it's also going to grow gram-positive cocci, similar to his, his blood culture. I think you nailed it. So yeah, they, they did they did end up taking a culture. I think that's a super good point. I also thought it was a super good point. You mentioned kind of that 50,000 mark on the white blood cells, just doing a little bit of my own research around this. So, you know, we're kind of taught that 50,000 is kind of like a diagnostic threshold for something like septic arthritis when it's above 50,000. That's exactly what you, what you mentioned. So I'm super supportive of it. I also thought it was interesting and not really specific um, to this case, but the, that 50,000 is actually really good for ruling in septic arthritis, but it's not something that's, that's really great for ruling it out. So studies, they, they looked at this in the American Journal of ER in, in 2007, and they basically had taken a bunch of, of patients who were culture positive for on their synovial fluid aspirates. And, and they found that 40% of those patients had white blood cell counts that were less than 50,000. So basically just big picture here is that it's only, it's not really that sensitive for picking it up only about 60%. So if it were to have been under 50,000, but we're so convinced with the clinical picture that we have, then we could still say that this is likely septic arthritis just based on all of the other information that we have. But because, you know, it's, it's over 50,000 here uh, and, and all the supporting evidence just kind of backs it up. So I thought that that was something interesting, kind of a little tidbit that I learned researching this. Another um, budding mathematician. I think Rush is doing <laughs> something in, in terms of the EBM front. Yeah, you know, that is... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, maybe Aaron, we can go in on something. And then yeah, in just in terms of approaching synovial fluids in general, like the most important things are the gross appearance. We're looking at the white blood cells, the gram stains, like you said, crystals. And then so we, we usually like to use 2000, like as a, as a marker for whether this is inflammatory versus non-inflammatory. And that's like a really good branch point. So non-inflammatory being things like osteoarthritis, trauma, avascular necrosis, and then greater than 2000, that kind of opens the door to more inflammatory causes, which we saw in this case. And then if it is inflammatory, you want to say like, are there crystals? So could that suggest some kind of um, gout or pseudo gout. And if there's not crystals, then yeah, we're thinking bacterial causes like septic arthritis, but there's also, you know, inflammatory causes like RA, spondyloarthritis, Lyme, Lyme arthritis, things like that as well. So just in, in terms of general approach to these synovial fluid analysis. Uh, I just kind of right. want to summarize what Nick did there because I, I came off room to end 2021 and this, we do arthrocentesis with something is bread and butter for room. But I think Nick captured it perfectly. It's inflammatory or not, then it's infectious or not. If it's infectious, culture it. If it's not infectious, are there crystals? If there's not crystals, something autoimmune. I think that's a, a great way to approach it. For sure. And then just kind of moving forward, like with the rest of the case. So this patient ended up, you know, having that, that, um, that TT, like you had said. So yeah, if we want to move on to the next aliquot. Yeah. So he had a repeat TT and then the brain MRI was obtained. We obviously, uh, and then a shoulder MRI as well. So um, just telling you that, that we did get those things and based on everything that we had talked about, you guys want to kind of just finally say what you think the diagnosis is um, in the most eloquent way possible based on all these findings here. I think that I will say you guys have done a pretty good job getting there so far. So I don't think it will be super hard for you at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to steal Berto's thunder because I think he was the one who really, who really sort of elucidated this first, but I'm going to do it anyway. It sounds like there's uh, colorectal cancer. I'm going to say the bacteria that's, that's causing him to be septic and that's grown on his mitral valve is probably strep bovis or strep gallolyticus. I don't really know which nomenclature we use nowadays. And he's thrown septic emboli to what sounds like his brain, his spleen, his sacroiliac joint, his right shoulder. Yeah. Kind of a catastrophic a septic emboli shower. Yeah. Exactly. Let me challenge you guys. And at least for discussion's sake, what if it wasn't bovis or gallolyticus and was something else? Uh, I think like what you had said earlier, Kevin, about Staph aureus, you know, when we, whenever we see a blood culture grow gram-positive cocci, Staph aureus, of course, jumps to the forefront of your mind. And so, you know, maybe it's too, too poetic to try to tie these GI and lower back symptoms in with this, with this, these cardiovascular symptoms, but you know, they could be, they could be unrelated, but just the fact that he had them occur at the same time, you know, who knows, very coincidental or coincidence. I'd like to add that. I mean, we knew he had a history of mitral valve disease, semi-aortic stenosis. I mean, it was a slower onset endocarditis, it seemed like. I mean, it went on for, it sounded like six to 12 weeks, right? Kind of was the, the timeline. I think we could also think of like Viridans, which is this more slower growing bug. And, you know, usually no big deal. But if he did have 
you know, any injury lesions to his valves, you know, that, that could have definitely been a little bit easier for Vera Dance to grow. And again, that'd be more of a slower onset. I think typically with like staff, I think of like a super quick, I mean, it just like goes in and like destroys your valves. I've seen maybe, you know, clinically it can be very different, but I think of that one as a more quicker moving one versus the slower insidious onset makes me think it could be something else. So like what we're thinking, Oregon, like I said, Vera Dance. Amazing guys. Amazing. Yeah. So I will say amongst, amongst our, our discussion in this last hour, you guys named the organism. And I will also say that you named the organism without even um, having any information about um, that, whether or not this patient had a colonoscopy or not, you guys kind of just, you know, you used your brains to ask that question. So I, I really, to be honest, I expected, or I, I, I didn't, I didn't even like expect you to go that far and like you 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 pretty much nailed this even to like to, to pretty much the organism as well so final diagnosis subacute enterococcus fecalis endocarditis complicated by septic embolic phenomenon pretty much nailed it on the head super impressive and i really enjoyed listening to you guys get to that diagnosis i um, would love to know now did this guy have a colonoscopy and how do we explain this enterococcus because these guys <laughs> jumped on that so quickly i know we have any <laughs> resolution we, yeah, so, so we actually, so yeah, so this, this patient was, you know, based on after these blood cultures, they, they had, they had recommended that he, that he get a colonoscopy as an outpatient. I will say I followed up on, on him in the medical record and I don't see that he has gotten a colonoscopy, but I will say that in terms of the actual enterococcus fecalis organism itself, so they had actually done some retrospective studies on did them at Mayo and they like took a cohort of, of these patients with, with enterococcus endo, endocarditis and, and patients who didn't really have any source of the enterococcus. And they found that about 15% of them did have advanced adenomas um, or colorectal carcinoma on their colonoscopies. So not exactly sure the outcome if that's the that's what happened with this patient if that was his source, but uh, it is uh, recommended that that a patient like this does get a colonoscopy. And then for fecalis itself, this is our third most common cause um, of native valve endocarditis uh, behind staph aureus and strep. Um, so it causes about 11% of cases and it's gram positive caucus. It inhabits our gut, it's a commensal, and, but it, you know, it can cause a variety of infections. UTIs are the most common endocarditis for sure, like we saw here. Kind of like in this case, usually presents um, as a more like subacute bacteremia, much less likely to be something like septic shock or something really extreme and acute like we'd see um, for staph aureus. Um, and so that, that could be a possible explanation for why this patient kind of just had this kind of smoldering um, infection, um, bacteremia over the course of time. And, and so, yeah, I, I, th I think that the organism kind of does like retrospectively make sense and, and in terms of kind of why this was such a subacute kind of gradual progressive progression. And yeah, so I do have some other teaching points. I don't want to do like a full lecture here, but um, so you guys can feel free to pitch in as well. But uh, just in, in terms of some, some kind of things we can bring home from this case. So in terms of our diagnosis, Berto, you had brought up the Duke criteria. And so I'm not going to go over everything like in, in detail, I'm not going to go over the full criteria, but for this individual patient. So our Duke criteria is a really well-validated diagnostic tool for endocarditis. And, and we can use two of the major clinical criteria. So in this patient, he had the positive blood culture for a known organism. And also there was a vegetation on the echo. So with those two things, we are able to make the diagnosis of of endocarditis. So that's how we did it based on the Duke criteria. And then I think the, the big picture learning point from, from this case today was really the, the complication that can happen with endocarditis, not just um, the endocarditis itself, but all of the systemic processes that can happen really can, it's widespread, can affect essentially any organ system. So cardiac complications are going to be the most common in about half patients, you're going to see them. And of those cardiac complications, heart failure is, is the most common. It's also the most common cause of death. It's usually due to direct vegetation affecting the valve. So causing valvular insufficiency, but uh, you can also get perivalvular abscess in, in endocarditis. And rarely you can even have septic embolization into the coronaries. So causing ischemia and infarction. So all of like really serious cardiac complications. And again, the cardiac ones are going to be the most common, but as, as we said, metastatic infection. So embolization, like abscesses to organs like the spleen and also mycotic aneurysms, usually like at branch points due to the kind of the chronic bacteremia effect on the vessel wall can also be an effective endocarditis. Moving on to MSK complications, so septic arthritis, which we saw here, also vertebral, vertebral osteomyelitis, which Aaron had brought up. As, as a possible cause here. And so I also thought it was interesting that when you have kind of joints that are involved in the, the uh, axial skeleton, so like the SI, the sacroiliac joint, which we saw, that can kind of be a clue as to something like a septic arthritis associated with endocarditis. 
neurologically we saw, so cerebrovascular events are really common. Stroke is the most common and that's most common in the month after diagnosis, but can be before or after the actual diagnosis of endocarditis. Um, renal infarction and abscesses can occur. When these patients are treated with antibiotics, it often requires like really long-term treatment. So when we think of effects, renal effects, we're also thinking of renal effects due to treatment. So, you know, we use aminoglycosides, we use vancomycin to treat endocarditis. So the renal effects from treatment are also something to keep in mind. And then pulmonary. So if it's right-sided, you can have septic pulmonary embolisms. If it's left-sided, you can have pulmonary edema from heart failure. So those would be pulmonary complications as well. And then if that was not enough information for you, the last, last thing I kind of wanted to go over, which was kind of a question we had clinically is, does this patient need surgery? So this patient had endocarditis and he's got a vegetation on his valve. Can we treat him with IV antibiotics or does he need to go to the OR? So we have common surgical indications for infectious endocarditis. Number one is, is there acute heart failure? So acute aortic or mitral valve regurgitation. Does the infection extend into the heart? So are there abscesses? Is there a heart block or any fistula in the heart? That would be an indication. Is the organism really difficult to eradicate? So if it's a fungus or something that's multi-drug resistant. Um, or there's persistent bacteremia despite appropriate antibiotics. And that's also an indication for surgery. And then lastly, we have the size of the vegetation. So we generally like to say that left-sided vegetations greater than one centimeter or right-sided ones greater than two centimeter are going to be um, based on size and indication to operate. And so for our patient, of all those criteria, the actual size of his vegetation, which was 2.5 centimeters by 1.4 centimeters, so very large, uh, was the indication to operate on him. So resolution of this case, the patient was put on IV antibiotics. They um, optimized him before surgery and ended up having triple vessel disease. So they did a cabbage while also putting in a bioprosthetic aortic valve or excuse me, mitral valve. He had some AFib. So they, that, so they did pretty widespread cardiac um, surgery. And then he was kind of had, was, you know, uh, he's in the hospital for a bit and then they just discharged him out eventually on IV antibiotics. So, um, yeah, I thought if you guys have any thoughts on any of those, I thought it was a super interesting case and really interesting and awesome to hear you guys talk through it. And then I think, like I said, that one of the reasons why I picked this one is just because I think that endocarditis is so interesting just because of how systemic it is. And so it makes it such a good disease to study like for anyone in medicine because pretty much every single organ system um, can be affected by it. So yeah. Kevin, did you have any thoughts or? Yeah, no, that was a super interesting case. I think, I mean, just like how broad back pain, how broad anemia is, like you threw stuff at us. That was like really interesting to kind of put together. So it was kind of, that was interesting to work through. And then the, the, the one thing I wanted to kind of mention about, you know, the final bug that was discovered from what, if I remember correctly, I think if I had to pick this or, Galil you know, Bovis Galiliticus for this man, I'd pick Enterococcus. First of all, if I remember correctly, Big Callus, I think that one's like less known to be vancomycin resistant, which is always a good thing. And then second, so if we're like making the classic like correlation to it, right? So then I'm not as concerned that this man has colorectal cancer, right? Because you know, if it's an interior caucus, you think of like after procedure versus, you know, if he came back with Galilicus, then I'd be more concerned to look for colon cancer, right? So I think I'm definitely feeling better that it's interior caucus. Obviously, it's still an awful outcome like that cabbage and you know that's all those surgeries he had or obviously could have been easy but i think it's good that you know, at least you know colon cancer isn't also in the mix in the mix yeah i i also like how you mentioned the um the treatment in terms of resistance so yeah vancomycin resistance in enterococcus is something that we really always are, are worried about as well um, i'll say for this patient he was ampicillin sensitive so they did they did alters it they kind of they took off the the vank and treated him um, with ampicillin and I think septraxone, but I'll have to double check on that. But also, yeah, another really good point there. Aaron, any final reflections before I bring things home for us? Yeah, I'm mad it wasn't strep bovis. I really wanted to put <laughs> that all in together. Come on. But for the, for the good of the patient, no, I, no, I, got it. I was just going to say this was a blast. I liked working through this. You know, it's, it's a great thought exercise and to do it with Berto, it's an honor. Like I said, you were the brains behind the operation. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you all. Thanks, Aaron. Guys, just... From, from the listening seat that I got to sit in, I'm excited for your careers. You're at the tail end of your M3 year and a budding internist, maybe cardiologist and budding neurosurgeon. You guys, your clinical reasoning is just on point. I think you guys should feel proud. And patients that you're, you have the opportunity to take care of, are they'll be lucky. This guy would have been in good hands to have you guys on his team. So it's really exciting to hear that. And Nick, you just did a fantastic job with this case one, putting it together, two, walking us through it and leading us in discussion. I, 
you have a career yourself as a clinician educator and I'm excited that you're excited about this stuff and so willing to to work with what we're doing here at Alert and Oriented. Appreciate that. And also just wanted to kind of add on that. Uh, yeah, I was super excited to hear Aaron and Rito kind of go over this one. I picked you guys because I know you guys are super well-spoken and it's just, it was really fun to hear you guys kind of talk through this. And like, I'm so impressed by how everything was eventually put together because this is something that, that, you know, even the, the diagnostic team in the hospital, like they struggled with it until there was that acute event on, on day four. And and like, you know, there was a normal echocardiogram before the, they did an MRI as an outpatient, did not show septic arthritis. So we kind of, Kevin and I were kind of talking about some of those things before the cases, like a lot of things were kind of leading away from it um, until you guys were like, you know, overwhelmed by the evidence and you know, put it together. So, and then, yeah, lastly, Kevin, thank you so much for like kind of really organizing this. You're pretty much the brains behind all this. And so look, looking forward to, to future episodes and kind of hearing what other people have to say. Yeah, no, I'm Thank you. And I'm just happy to make some smart friends along the way. So thank you guys for coming on. And on that note, we'll wrap things up and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.